Welcome to Malden Reads One City One Book, the companion podcast to the community reading program in Malden, Massachusetts. This year's book is Born a Crime by the famous comedian Trevor Noah. I'm your host, Annie Bennett. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Malden Reads One City, One Book. I'm your host, Annie Bennett. Today, here is our special guest, Neil Anderson, the president of City Council in Malden. How are you doing today, Mr. Anderson? Well, Annie, I am doing wonderful. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for being here. Well, you are certainly welcome. It's my pleasure. We may not know everything, but we're glad to get in front of a camera and and a microphone and go on. So you fire away. Okay. (laughs) So you are a lifelong Malden resident, right? I am. How have you seen uh, the city change over your lifetime? Well, I think I've been blessed by being in the city, the city of Malden, which I think is a great city. Malden has been a, a very welcoming city for me and my family. I grew up in this city with uh, seven sisters and brothers. Uh, some older, some younger. So uh, uh, this has been home for me. And growing up here in Malden, Malden has been a uh, a city where uh, uh, my friends growing up, who were who were Italian and Irish and Jewish and and black and brown and yellow and and all that we all. You know, we were all uh, going through the same experiences of uh, of growing up in this multicultural city, and it's been a welcoming city, and I've uh, I've loved every moment being here. Right. And so you joined the Navy when you were uh, how old? 19. 19. Going to South Africa and having a pretty impactful experience there. Is that correct? Yes. Um, and so can you tell me a little bit about what that taught you and what you took away from it? Sure. So let me just give you a little little backdrop here. So I was, I w- I was in the Naval Reserves. I was on active duty for a couple of years. And during that... At a couple of year period of time, I was uh, 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 aboard an aircraft carrier, the Franklin Roosevelt, uh, and we went. We, it was during the Vietnam War, uh, and we went off to overseas. We went to the what we call the Western Westpac, where uh, we were operating off the coast of Vietnam, and on our way back from the Westpac, heading back to back to the United States, or what they referred to as CONUS, the continental United States, we, we came back down through the Indian Ocean, and, and one of the ports of call that we, that we uh, came into was Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, and we came into Cape Town, South Africa, because the, the carrier that I was on needed to refuel. As we came into Cape Town, South Africa, at, uh, uh, about two or three days prior to coming into port, now this is I'm talking about uh, probably 1960. I'm going back to 1967 during apartheid. So as we were coming into port, about two days before we get into port, uh, the non-white servicemen aboard the ship. There were four thousand. There was a four thousand man aircraft carrier, and there were probably fifteen hundred to two thousand, maybe even. Uh, persons of color, both uh, sailors as well as Marines, that uh, were 
brought together in in the forecastle of the ship, the forward portion of the ship, and uh, we had this meeting where they prepared us for what apartheid was like when we were to go ashore. Um, South Africans had set up uh, uh, a number. They were look, welcoming this warship coming coming into their port and had uh, scheduled a number of uh, of visits and tours for the sailors and and um, you know the this club was inviting so many persons and this other organization was inviting people and there was a banquet here and and for the non-white servicemen you know I think there might have been. Might have been one one schedule at the at the some dance hall or whatever, and we were instructed about apartheid. How uh, there were places that non-white servicemen uh, were restricted to. We couldn't we couldn't go freely inside of uh, this port of call. And so as we as the carrier was coming into coming into port, we could see we could see the in the distance, a uh, line of cars that were coming down off of, I think it was called Tabletop Mountain. And it was a, it was a roadway that you could see just backed up traffic coming in, anxious to see this, uh, this giant warship that was coming back from defense of freedom in, in uh, the Vietnam War coming into port. Well, because of our circumstances, and because of the times, as we pulled into port, or just before coming into port, having this, having had this instruction about uh, the limitations that us non-white servicemen would had to had to go through, I think the civil rights leaders in our country got wind of the fact that uh, uh, non-white servicemen were going to be subjected to this apartheid, and and what a what a what a conflict! I mean, we were we were supposedly going to Vietnam to defend democracy and freedom, and now we were being subjected to this apartheid. That the decision was that as we pulled into port, that liberty was then being canceled for everyone. If, if, uh, if the State Department wasn't able to work out some other arrangement with the South African government, where where we would be allowed to enjoy the the liberty call in South Africa with all the white servicemen, then no one was to have was to have uh, liberty. And so, as we pulled in, uh, what was arranged was that the residents of South Africa could come on the ship and visit the ship and see the planes and see where where we operated from and talk with us servicemen and so forth. But there were no servicemen from the ship that were allowed to go ashore in Liberty. There was one group of, of sailors that, that did go ashore, and I think they were going ashore because they were asked to uh, to go to the local, the local hospital to give blood. They were blood donors. But other than that, uh, liberty was canceled for, for everyone. And, and instead, the visitors came aboard the ship and, and enjoyed seeing uh, this majestic warship with uh, 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 three football fields long, 
Uh, I think there were a 4,000 man crew. There were a hundred airplanes that were stacked up on the, on the hangar deck and on the flight deck. And it was uh, impressive and massive. And, uh, and we were, we were looking, we were looking all proud and American like what, how did you, what was your reaction when you found out about the American government's decision to cancel the trip? If, if it couldn't be equal, then it wasn't going to happen. Well, I think I think most of us were uh, would have liked to have gone ashore, uh, but I think that the decision was the proper decision. You know, I don't think it would have been right for for us to have been subjected; those of us who were non-white to be subjected to the to the rules of apartheid. And and uh, there was a good substitution of having of having uh, uh, our stay in Cape Town, and it took three days. We were there for three days. It took that long for the for the fuel for the ship to be refueled, pumping pumping the diesel fuel onto the ship to to uh, to get us ready to make that final leg from Cape Town, South Africa, back to Jacksonville, Florida, where the home port of the ship was. So while we we uh, entertained, I guess is probably the better word to use, the visitors from South Africa that came aboard. Um, an interesting, interesting dynamic took place for for us sailors, and and here's how I would describe that: that we were told, well, as as the visitors came aboard, there was there were two entrances to the ship. There were two uh, brows, they referred to them, where. Uh, the officers may normally come on one side and the enlisted come on the other the other end of the ship and and in this case both uh, white and non-white residents of South Africa were allowed to come on in an integrated manner and what we were told by those non-white South Africans was that this was probably the first time that many of them had ever experienced a situation where they were allowed to come on in a in a non-segregated entrance onto the ship. So for them, this was a big deal. Now, and and what and as we get to talking with uh, with, with with the residents, they were able to see that us servicemen we're doing the same, us non-white servicemen, we're doing the same jobs for the most part as the white servicemen. You know, there was, we, we would have the insignias on our, on our arm, whether we were, whether we were mechanics or electricians or, or, or weaponry or, uh, or, or whatever the specialty that we had, whether we worked on the, whether we were assigned to the, to the ship as ship's company, or we were with the air wing working on the air, air on the aircraft. So, to the South African visitors that came on, those non-white South African visitors that came on, they were impressed with with seeing us blacks and and non-whites having those same kind of jobs, and it certainly gave us a sense of pride that uh, you know that we were representing America and we were representing America in in what was, I guess, by comparison, uh, uh, a step above those who were in South Africa. We were feeling good and, and, and accepted it as, as if that was the way everything should be, that everyone should be able to do all these jobs, whatever you were skilled to do. So, so there, there was that sense of pride. Right. The, other, the other experience that I, that I had and that I noticed is that when we would talk with, uh, with some of the 
some of the folks, they would ask them, you know, well, what's it like living here under this system of apartheid? And all of a sudden, they would get into very harsh situations like, uh, you know, we're, we're not allowed to have that discussion. We can't, we can't talk about those things. And, and they'd go on to say that, you know, like if, if, you, if you look over my left shoulder out there to see, you'll see that island that's out there, and, and that's the prison. And that's where we get sent if we're caught having these discussions about what the, what the government is like and what we're subjected to. That was 1967. I remember that just like it was yesterday, that feeling of, of how, how those folks were, were just kept in place and stepped on. Clearly, this was a very impactful and memorable experience for you. What did, what did you take away as an individual and as a politician? How did this change your perspective? I'm not sure that that necessarily changed my perspective. I didn't, didn't think in those kind of terms, but I, do, I will say that uh, the overall experience for me uh, being in the Navy, and, and while, while I was only in active duty for a couple of years, during that two-year period, I've been to to Cape. I've, I've been to to the Philippines. I've been to Japan. I've been to Hong Kong. I've been to Cape Town, South Africa. I've been to France, Italy, Spain, Malta. Different locations all over the world. And and the significant thing for me was in in these ports of call that I visited. As a sailor, I mean, we'd only go in there for maybe a, a week's worth of time and then move out to sea and go to the next port. But what I saw was pop in many of these places. I can remember seeing when I was in, in Hong Kong, seeing whole families living in these little little sand pans. It was a, it was a boat that uh, was, you know, 12 feet long and, and families lived in, in, in this sand pan village where all these boats who had at one time had been in the had had been in floating water but the time that we were there the water had drained out and these boats were actually on the land and the whole families were living in in situations like that and and I saw the same thing in Europe where where people were were living hand to hand to mouth I thought about my own life and and my own family I saw I saw in in the Philippines situation in, in in Hong Kong and in Japan, you know, the prostitution that took place, how the how the the, the live you know, people had to that, that was um, the main livelihood was the pro- prostitution of young girls. And I and I thought, you know, I've I've got nieces that age, you know, but for the grace of God, you know, it could be us that are forced into that kind of situation. And and as a result of that I had this crazy idea of when I get back to when I get out of the service and I come home I want to get involved in in doing something to uplift people and get involved in social work and so uh, I came back home I get out of the service and in 1968 it was in the midst of the civil rights activities and uh, I was able to to get a work uh, get get a job in in, in human services working in a community-based organization, helping, helping black and brown and poor whites and Asians 
learn skills and get jobs and and helping in that regard and so i was able to play out some of those things as a result of my of my seeing what took place while i was in the service and wanting to do something about it you uh you know had that career and ended up running for office what are some of the different bills and acts that you've sponsored that you're particularly proud of since you've been in city council yeah, I think I don't have a, a whole litany of bills that I've sponsored, but I but I I, I do think that uh, my contribution to the city council has been my ability to be able to bring other people of color into understanding what city government is all about and what what city government is able to do for our residents. You know, most of the information that I've been able to impart. You know, I, I go back to 1984 when I was first elected, that uh, I, most of the people in the communities of color weren't accessing the services that city government had to offer. You know, the housing programs, the assistance, the, you know, if there, if there was an issue with with them and city government, they wouldn't know where to go. So through me, I was able to connect people with the various departments for help and assistance and so forth. I think that's been been my major contribution. It's been my my contribution of being able to to uh, as the city has had uh, uh, civic activities going on. Um, over the years, I've been able to encourage and bring more people of color who wouldn't ordinarily come to these things like the St. Rocco's Feast or the or coming to the St. Patrick's Day breakfast and, and feeling out of place in those things. But being able to, to show that this city of Malden is a welcoming enough city that, that we can all participate in these things outside of our own our own community and our own culture. And so so that hang my hat on. When I was first in the, in the council, we were we would we were looking at the the school buildings of of Malden, and the neighborhood that I represent, Ward Seven. At that time, we had uh, uh, junior high schools, and there was the threat to be able to that they were going to take one of those junior high schools away from us. There was the Brown, the BB, and the Lincoln junior high schools, and and uh, the. The, the the poorest neighborhood in the city was the neighborhood that I represent, and, and we uh, I was able to gather the the community together to to uh, focus attention on on uh, fixing up the school of coming in and organizing uh, neighbors to come out and, and and roll up the sleeves and paint the 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 the. the, the the decrepit and, and, and neglected walls and, and floors and bring this school up to up to the point where where we insisted that the school department not close down our school and it kept the school going uh, until they changed the whole system around it. Yeah, that's great. I actually wanted to talk a little bit about education. Um, and so I'm going to read a quick excerpt from the book. Um, it's talking about um, Trevor Noah's friend when he's growing up in South Africa, whose name was Hitler. And so the passage goes, um, Hitler, although an unusual name, is not unheard of in South Africa. Part of it has to do with the way a lot of black people pick names. Black people choose their traditional names with great care. Those are the names that have deeply personal meanings. 
But from colonial times to the days of apartheid, black people in South Africa were required to have an English or European name as well, a name that white people could pronounce, basically. So you had your English name, your traditional name, and your last name. Nine times out of ten, your European name was chosen at random, plucked from the Bible, or taken from a Hollywood celebrity or famous politician in the news. I knew guys named after Mussolini and Napoleon and, of course, Hitler. Westerners are shocked and confused by that, but really it's a case of the wet the West reaping what it has sown. The colonial powers carved up Africa, put the black man to work, and did not properly educate him. White people don't talk to black people, so why would black people know what's going on in the white man's world? So I wanted to talk a little bit about that and your work with education and also your understanding as a lifelong resident of Malden, someone who um, I would assume went through the Malden school system. What educational inequalities did you see not only from infrastructure and research, but also in the curriculum and the, the parts of our history that were lacking? I'm not a, necessarily a historian, so I can't speak with any real authority, but I can tell you that an experience that I had that uh, is telling, when I left the service and I went to work in this organization in Roxbury that uh, was called Opportunities Industrialization Centers. It was a training center that uh, trained mostly black and Hispanic and other poor people in, in, in how to succeed in the workplace. We taught them vocational skills. And along with those vocational skills, we also wanted to talk about the world of work skills. And an important element of that, particularly for the black students, who were the majority of the students that were there, was about black history. So much of my knowledge of real black history didn't really come until I was an adult, until I was out of the out of high school. You know, the one week of Black History Week that we had growing up was to talk about, uh, you know, Booker T. Washington or, 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 or something that was that was taught by a white person that probably didn't know much of uh, much of the history him or herself. So it wasn't something that uh, was focused upon. And most of the images of, of blackness during my growing up period of time was usually negative. You know, there was the negative stereotypes, the images that we saw on television, the images we saw of uh, in the movies of, of black people were, were nothing like the images that uh, were, were the real portrayal of, of black people. So, so much of, much of, uh, of, of my coming to understand the value and the beauty of blackness comes out of the black church comes out of my adult growing and, and adult learning. So I worked for this organization that taught black history. Mm -hmm. And it would be then that we would begin to, to learn about the great f contributions that black people have had. And I remember being sent off to this management training school that OIC had in Philadelphia, our headquarters. And they were, they were, uh, it was a, it was a, a, a three month long training where they had taken OIC employees who were in the mid level range and were grooming us to be higher level managers and, and want to, and, and put us together. And these were people from, from, 
local affiliates of OIC all around the country, many. And I can remember talking with this one young black man. He's about my age, and I'm, I'm probably in my middle 20s by this time. And um, he was from Texas, and I'm here from the Boston area. They wouldn't know about Malden. They'd only know that I was from Boston area. And, and I can remember him saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you're from Boston. Oh, yeah, that's where they got that statue of uh, Christmas Addicts, right? And I have to admit that I was dumbfounded because I didn't know who Christmas Addicts was. And this guy was puzzled because I, as a black person, didn't know who Christmas Addicts was. Well, Christmas Addicts, I'm sure, in his black education in the South, where he was taught by black teachers and black instructors, you know, uh, Christmas Addicts would be someone who, who, would, who would, they would be uh, centering their attention on. That was not someone that we talked about, that I knew about, was aware about until that kind of experience. So I look at so I so so to to further that that point of view when we when we look today and see the the movies like I don't know if you've seen Hidden Figures. Have you ever seen the movie Hidden Figures? Mm-hmm. Great great movie. Great movie. Yeah, I really enjoyed think, it. Yeah, think about the impact that that could have had on on girls and in particular young black girls who had seen what these black women were able to accomplish. is isn't the image that was projected to us, the image of, of brilliant black women who were able to, to do the mathematical calculations that helped launch the rockets, you know, the little launch and, and landing. Right. And, and so, so the lack of that kind of, of positive images for, for black and, and, and I would say for, for other BIPOC people, you know, indigenous and people of color, you know, when, when all we're given is European history and not, and not positive images of ourselves, um, there's, such a, there's such a disadvantage not only to us, but to the white people who think they automatically are then superior because of, of the focus of being on the accomplishments that the white people have made. Right. And I think that's what is he uses humor to point that out. But it's also very important to think about the fact that there are kids being named Mussolini, Hitler, Napoleon, these people that if you're raised in a a culture where Eurocentric education is highlighted, then it's like you could never imagine someone being named after that. But since we don't um, we're, I just feel like there's a lot of shelter around the American education system. And you don't really, re- like, you're meant to learn that America and the Western world is kind of the center of reality. And, and that's not necessarily the case, as we see from Noah's book. Um, and so what are some other comparisons beyond, besides, you know, oppression that you were able to see between apartheid and Jim Crow? Well, I didn't experience Jim Crow until I was in the service. And I'll say that my experience here in Malden was a very, very positive experience. You know, the the friendships that I've developed, the upbringing that I developed, that I had in Malden was, you know, Malden has been a welcoming city for people of color as well as for white people. It wasn't until I went south, and my first experience going south was in the Navy. I was, I was uh, 
sent to uh, to training down in Millington, Tennessee, which is right outside of, of Memphis. And I've told this story to others where where it was the first time was told there were places that I couldn't go because of the color of my skin. I can remember meeting this uh, young woman uh, in, in Memphis, Tennessee, and and having a date and wanting to take her to the movie theater. We were going to the 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 state theater down in down in Main Street in Memphis, Tennessee, to go to the movie and I'm ready to buy the the tickets and she reminded me, no, 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 no. We can't we can't buy those tickets. We have to buy the tickets for upstairs. Oh, that's okay, darling. I've got the money for it. No, no, no. It wasn't a matter of me having the money. This is 1968 now, and we're in, or 19, this was 1965 now, and we're in, we're in Memphis, Tennessee, and, and black people cannot go and sit downstairs in the theater. We have to go up to the segregated section, and that was, that was a shock to, to my system. That was a shock to me, and to see that kind of, uh, so it was just new, and didn't know about that must have been really jarring for you. Other experience, I, I had my motorcycle mm-hmm. that that was uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, had shipped down to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, the base that I was on was about 20 miles away from, from uh, downtown Memphis. And one Sunday evening, as myself and, and my, my best buddy there uh, from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, we're heading back to the base on a Sunday evening where we're rushing down the interstate highway ready to uh, get back to back to base before Liberty was over. And I came off the interstate highway and took the off ramp. And the next thing I know, I see blue lights behind me. And I'm sure that that the police officer there uh, saw me speeding and pulled me over. Got caught speeding. I wasn't too concerned, you know. You get caught speeding, you get you get done, you get wrong, you, you pay the price. And so when the police officer sauntered up to the to the motorcycle, and there he sees two young black men. We had civilian clothes on, but but I had uh, Massachusetts tags on the on the registration plates on the on the vehicle. He asked with his uh, southern drawl whether. Whether you know you boys are stationed out at the base, and I said, "Yeah, this your motorcycle." Yeah, he took my license and went back to the car. And while he was walking back to the car, my 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 shipmate, a black man from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, was very frightened and began to talk under you know whisper to me, telling me that you know Neil, you, you're not in. In Boston, you don't talk to white police officers that way. When he asks you a question, you better say yes, sir. You know, you answering him by saying yeah, you know, we allowed to get us both killed out here. That never occurred to me. Never occurred that I was that that he would that the police officer would see that as being disrespectful. That wasn't that wouldn't have been seen as disrespectful if that had happened in Malden, Massachusetts. And 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 but but from the experience from my shipmate who had grown up in the South, this was a harrowing experience that that we were going through. And he was truly frightened. Uh, I I couldn't figure out why he was frightened until I began to to, to think about it afterwards. That uh, from his experience that. That was something that I was putting us both in danger. 
it turned out that the police officer probably recognized I was a dumb northerner, didn't know anything about the southern ways, and gave me my license back, told me to get on my way and, and drive safely, and and uh, there was no no further incident about that. But uh, but that that's another one of those experiences that that showed me the difference between the experiences that I've had in, in the city of Malden and the experiences that I had when I was there in the South. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, we are actually out of time, but this was... <laughs> I'm just getting warmed up, too. I know, I know. Um, but this was really great. I really appreciate your time. And, uh, yeah, so thank you, everyone, to uh, City Council President Neil Anderson. Well, thank you. I appreciate you uh, you called and inviting me to share, share these stories. And uh, um, good afternoon to you. Yes. All right. Thank you, everyone, to all of our listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Malden Reads One City, One Book. I'm your host, Andy Bennett. Have a good day. For 11 years, Malden Reads has been exploring the answer to the question, what if all of Malden read the same book? You can check them out at maldenreads.org, that's M-A-L-D-E-N-R-E-A-D-S.org, and follow them on social media. And while you're there, check out the personal greeting to Malden from Trevor Noah on the set of The Daily Show.